Injured in a car accident? We cap attorney's fees at 30% of the first million. Any recovery above that is all yours. No recovery, no fees or costs. If another lawyer wants more, lawyer up 904. For accidents, injuries, and more, lawyer up 904. Jacksonville. The sports world keeps spinning, and the local conversation continues. Now, Hacker After Dark on 1010XL. And a very good Wednesday evening to you, Jacksonville. It is Hacker After Dark, 1010XL, 92.5 FM with Dylan Denmark. The Hacker Ryan Green with you. Glad you are with us. We have reached the middle point of the week. Heck, for most of you that work the daytime shift, you are past the midway point. First week without Jaguar football. We're all getting through it together. As we reflect back on the Jaguar season that was, look ahead, the offseason to come. We'll do that tonight again. John Shipley of Jaguar Report, part of Sports Illustrated. He's joined us all season long, and we'll continue that conversation with John Shipley of Jaguar Report. That is coming up in about 20 minutes or so. At about 9 o'clock, my man Ryan Roberts, Rise and Draft, the letter N, riseanddraft.com. I want to do a couple of things with Ryan. I want to talk Trevor Lawrence, obviously. I want to talk about the Jaguar season, but I want to focus on some of the younger guys here in Jacksonville, the Tyson Campbells, the Andre Siscos, the Chad Muma, Devin Lloyd, Trayvon Walker, Luke Fortner. Ryan studied all these guys. He's covered the draft for years. Get his thought on the first and second year Jaguars and how much they meant to this 2022 run. And then we'll look ahead. What about this year's draft class? Positions of strength, positions of weakness. What does he see happening right around the time the Jaguars will pick in the mid-20s? So Ryan Roberts, riseanddraft.com. You guys know that's one of my draft websites this time of year. He's going to come up right about 9 o'clock. And at the bottom of the 9 o'clock hour, we will go to Gainesville. Andrew Spivey, gatorcountry.com. Haven't talked to Andrew since the Jaden Rashada fiasco. What really happened? What do we really know happened with Jaden Rashada? What does it mean for Florida in that quarterback room moving forward? What are his thoughts about the transfer portal? Florida's been a little more active in the last week, but by and large, I think Florida fans are kind of underwhelmed at what they've done in the portal, considering when you look at Florida State, again, just cleaning up in the transfer portal. So, Andrew Spivey, GatorCountry.com, he will come up at the bottom of the 9 o'clock hour. But as we always do, to kick things off here on Hacker After Dark, we have a big deal of the night and Dylan Denmark. Let's do that right now. Time now for the big deal of the night. What's the big deal? What is the big deal? It is a big deal. On Hacker After Dark. So, Mel Kuyper Jr. came out with Mock Draft 1.0. It is a rite of passage on sports radio in this country. From Jacksonville to New York, Los Angeles to Miami and all points in between that when Mel Kuyper Jr. comes out with a mock draft, we will dedicate at least a little bit of time to it. Now, I'm not going to read you name for name what he has going on, but something stuck out to me today. It's Jaguar-related, 
but it's not really Jaguar-related. And I'll explain here in a moment. So Mel Kuyper Jr., Mock Draft 1.0. Now, 1.0, he's got a blindfold on, and he's throwing darts at a board, all right? By the time we get to Mel Kuyper Jr.'s Mock Draft 5.0, well, then it's serious, all right? Then you need to get a cold beverage, a brown water. You need to sit back, and you need to really soak it all in at 5.0. But at 1.0, you're just kind of getting a feel for what Mel Kuyper thinks about this draft class. So he releases it today. Georgia Bulldog fans, for the second year in a row, you would have the number one pick in the draft, according to Mel Kuyper, as he has Jalen Carter, the big defensive lineman, going to the Chicago Bears at number one. At number two, he has the Houston Texans drafting C.J. Stroud. That's kind of interesting, right? You normally see Bryce Young as the number one quarterback off the board. Mel Kuyper has C.J. Stroud as the number one quarterback off the board. Hold that thought for a moment. He has Arizona taking Will Anderson from Alabama, the all-world defensive end. And at number four, he has the Indianapolis Colts selecting Bryce Young. I will tell you that I'm going to scroll down and tell you who he has Jacksonville taking. Uh, Raise your hand if you can tell me anything about Deontay Banks, a cornerback from Maryland. That is who Mel Kuyper Jr. has your Jacksonville Jaguars selecting. Deontay Banks, cornerback Maryland. I'll have to do a little research on Deontay Banks and get back to you. By the way, local interest here as well, Anthony Richardson, according to Mel Kuyper Jr., going number nine to the Carolina Panthers. Anthony Richardson in the top ten. I keep hearing that. Yeah, I keep hearing that over and over and over. I love Anthony Richardson. I think he's got all the potential in the world. But did he show enough to be a top ten pick in the draft? Or are you drafting solely, solely on potential? But back to the topic at hand and the big deal of the night. For starters, two teams in the AFC South are drafting in the top five. You got Houston at number two. You got Indianapolis at number four. So that in and of itself is interesting. You got two teams in Houston and Indianapolis that are in the midst of coaching searches right now that as we sit here on January the 25th, neither one of them has a head coach. (coughs) And you got two teams in Houston and Indianapolis that, according to Mel Kuyper Jr., are going to draft quarterbacks in the top five. Now let's think about that for a moment. The AFC South only has four teams. All right? You got Jacksonville, Tennessee, obviously Houston and Indianapolis. Half the teams in the division are picking in the top five, meaning they were awful in 2022. Half the teams in the division are currently looking for a head coach because they do not have one on January the 25th. And half the teams in the division do not know who their starting quarterback is going to be on opening day in 2023. And more than likely, it could very easily be a rookie quarterback starting for both of them. 
Jacksonville is going to be an overwhelming, resounding, whatever other verbiage you want to use. <coughs> Excuse me. That's what Jacksonville is going to be in the AFC South when all the preseason prognostications come out. And that's before free agency even happens. That's before the draft even happens. Barring something catastrophic happening, Jacksonville's the team in the AFC South. With one possible caveat, the Tennessee Titans, by the way, they're picking 11th. You almost have every team in the division picking in the top 10 other than Jacksonville. Tennessee finished 7-10 and 10 and finished second in the South. That's how bad that division was. Tennessee just hired a brand-new general manager, right? Former Gator running back Rand Carthon. So it's not as if Tennessee is set in stone with everything. Brand-new general manager. They're going to want to do things his way. Now, he and Mike Vrabel have never worked together. We've seen here in Jacksonville how that works with you, when you bring in a GM that did not hire the coach. That's tricky business. That's what Tennessee is attempting to do. We don't know about Ryan Tannehill moving forward. Derrick Henry is not getting any younger. Tennessee potentially has problems too. But if you're the Titans and you realize that Derrick Henry's not getting any younger and you realize that your window of opportunity potentially, potentially closed this year, maybe you have one year left, do you throw all your chips in the middle of the table for an opportunity to bring in either an Aaron Rodgers or a Tom Brady? The Tom Brady correlation is simple. He was teammates with Mike Vrabel in New England. <clears throat> That's the only foreseeable reason I could see Tom Brady going to Tennessee. They don't have great weapons at wide receiver. They have arguably the best running back in football, although, again, he's not getting any younger. They have an above-average defense, I suppose, a good defense. I wouldn't call them great. They're good. But you just don't have a lot of weapons there. I mean, when Traylon Burks and Robert Woods and Austin Hooper are who you're throwing the ball to, that's a problem. Would Tom Brady want to do that? Aaron Rodgers is a little different. Aaron Rodgers is a guy that Green Bay has come out and said, or per Adam Schefter, if Aaron Rodgers does not return to Green Bay, the Packers would think about trading him only to an AFC team. Again, reports all over the place. Believe what you want. It is rumor season this time of year, but I don't blame the Packers if that's true. I wouldn't trade Aaron Rodgers within the conference. Are you kidding me? If you're going to trade him, yeah, trade him to the AFC so you don't have to deal with it. So could Tennessee be in play there? Would Aaron Rodgers want to go to Tennessee? <coughs> Excuse me. I don't know if he would or not. But to me, that's the only way Jacksonville is not picked by every publication uh, preseason to win this division and win it comfortably. You got Houston, first-year head coach, more than likely a rookie quarterback. Indianapolis, first-year head coach, more than likely a rookie quarterback. Tennessee with a first-year general manager and an aging roster. 
unless they bring in a Rodgers or a Brady. But good grief, man. You want to talk about good times ahead here in Jacksonville? The division is soft right now. It is ripe for the picking. And Jacksonville, to me, is the only team in this division that the arrow is clearly pointing up. In no way can you say that about Houston. In no way can you say that about Indianapolis. And in no way can you say that again about Tennessee. Again, the second pick, the fourth pick, and the 11th pick are the three other teams in the South. Tennessee, second place at 7-10, and 10, losing seven games in a row to end the year. Different head coaches, different quarterbacks. The one consistent in the division right here in Jacksonville. And when did we think we would ever say that? That the consistent team in the AFC South, believe it or not, is the Jacksonville Jaguars. It's absolutely incredible to think that. Back to Mel Kuyper's mock draft. The Texans do have two picks in the top 12. Remember, they get Cleveland's pick, the 12th pick as well. So the Texans pick second and 12th. By the way, they have Tennessee taking an offensive tackle, and they need that. Their offensive line was just putrid at the end of the year. I'll give you the greatest hits. Michael Mayer, the tight end of Notre Dame, 15th to Green Bay. He's a guy that I would watch for Jacksonville. You're going to see a lot of tight ends mocked to Jacksonville without knowing Evan Ingram's status. If Ingram re-signs, that'll change. <clears throat> but for the here and now, you're going to see a lot of tight ends that are mocked to the Jaguars. 641-1010 is the phone number on the phone line and on the text line designed by Lifetime Enclosures. John Shipley of Jaguar Report. Let's review the season. Let's look ahead to the offseason to come with our man John Shipley. He's next on Hacker After Dark. Now, another interview on the Farrah and Farrah phone line brought to you by the accident attorneys at Farrah and Farrah. Back here on 1010XL at 92.5 FM in the city of Jacksonville. We are glad you are with us. The Jaguar season has come to an end, but there is certainly a lot to reflect on and a lot to look forward to. As believe it or not, the offseason is going to be here sooner than you realize. Free agency well inside of two months from right now. John Shipley of Jaguar Report, always kind enough to join us here on 1010XL in Jacksonville. John, you were out in Kansas City. I'm glad you got home safe, brother. How uh, how was the trip? Yeah, man, it, it was fantastic. You know, obviously, everybody was rooting for, you know, a different result, keep this kind of thing going, keep this coverage going. But I, I thought it was awesome. You know, Arrowhead, I highly recommend uh, the experience that anybody was ever able to go. It was, you know, for me, I, I haven't been to as many stadiums as a lot of my colleagues. But to me, it was one of the best game day experiences. So it was a good trip, and I felt like, you know, the – you know, it's a cliche for people to say, you know, we'll be better for this one, et cetera, when losing a game. But I really do think the Jaguars will be better after this one. You know, it's been a couple of days, so we won't reflect too much on the game. But quickly, it's the first time you and I have had a chance to talk. It was very similar, John, I thought, to the regular season matchup at Arrowhead. The Jaguars had some opportunities. Uh, they did not take advantage of them, but clearly – they looked like they belonged out there on that field with the Chiefs. 
Yeah, and I, I, I mean that that was the biggest thing. You, know, you watch the Giants and Eagles, you know, just a few hours later, and the Giants get ran off the field. It was clear that they they were nowhere near, you know, ready to compete with a powerhouse like the Eagles. Whereas the Jaguars, you know, I can think of three specific plays. You know, Fourier's dropped interception, Kirk's dropped sixty something yard pass from Lawrence, and Agnew fumble. If any of those three plays go the other way, I mean, the, the Jaguars are taking the Kansas City Chiefs right down to the wire. And doing that in the playoff game on the road, you know, I know Mahomes was injured, but even injured, you know, Patrick Mahomes, you know, 75% Patrick Mahomes is probably still the best quarterback in the NFL. So I think the fact that they were able to kind of go toe-to-toe with the Chiefs in the fashion that they did, you know, in year one of kind of this rebuild, I think, you know, speaks volumes. Because, again, it wasn't like a giant situation where, you know, they're kind of a plucky team who obviously overachieved, and then when they get to the big stage, they get ran off the field. And no, the Jaguars look like they belong. John, it's kind of like the stages of grief we all learn about back in grade school, right? I mean, first there's denial, and then there's, you know, acceptance, and then however the stages go. I got the sense on Saturday night, you know, people were upset, obviously, but then as Sunday and Monday came around, you know, people started accepting that it was over. But now I think it's more kind of sadness because people are really excited about this football team and people can't wait. I've had more people ask me over the last 48 hours when the off-season program begins than maybe I've ever had ask me in previous years. Certainly a lot of excitement in this city moving forward. Yeah, no, I actually had a fan from you know, Europe DM me you know, the other day saying that they started following the Jaguars this year and they were like, do it. Do I really have to wait till September to watch them again? And I mean, that kind of, you know, says it all. I, I, last year, people couldn't wait for the Jaguar season to be over. I mean, really the last couple of years, whereas now, you know, like you said, the sadness was more about the fact that this was the last game. And the fact that you don't really think fans in the city really grew to kind of love this specific Jaguars team, you know, the cast of characters and mentality that they had and, yeah, it's called the not belong league, you know, for a reason. Every team's going to change every year. Even though the Jaguars are probably going to, you know, look extremely similar next year, there will be some differences. So this was, you know, the last game that you'll ever see out of this specific team, and that's where I think a lot of the sadness came from. But just a sense of, I, I didn't really get many senses of people being angry after the game, which, you know, in a game where they kind of lost it themselves, I kind of thought people would be, but I, I didn't really get that sense from anybody. John Shipley, Jaguar Report, part of Sports Illustrated, here with us on 1010XL in Jacksonville. John, I see that Doug Peterson is officially a finalist for AP Coach of the Year. Well-deserved. Will he win it? I don't know. Certainly Shanahan in San Francisco, Dable in New York, other very strong candidates. But, uh, look, you doing more under the circumstances than what Doug Peterson had to do here in Jacksonville – I'm not sure there's another coach out there that had to do it. So he, he would get my vote, John. Yeah, absolutely. And if, if I had a vote, you know, obviously it's different. I cover the Jaguars every day. I've seen every step of the Peterson, you know, turn around as opposed to watching dabble from afar. But just my personal opinion, you know, obviously what Shanahan's done, getting a third-string quarterback to within a game of the Super Bowl is incredible. But that's one of the best rosters in the NFL. You know, they were expected to win double-digit games. Uh, the New York, you know, obviously I think Brian Dable deserves a lot of credit for turning them around, but I also wonder, you know, did people underestimate that roster maybe? Because there aren't many teams that make the playoffs with a purely bad roster. And if you just look at their quality of wins 
Packers, maybe, you know, the Jaguars quality of wins. I said the Giants were more of a lucky than a good team, whereas the Jaguars were a better on-field product. And then you obviously take the playoffs into account. Uh, the Jaguars went toe-to-toe with the Chiefs. The Giants got the doors blown off by the Eagles. I personally think it should be Peterson, especially after, you know, uh, uh, the big thing was the Jaguars team was so young that most of these guys, you know, guys who came in in 2021, guys like Trevor, Tyson, uh, ETN, Walker Little, Cisco, they had no idea what it meant to be a pro because last year they weren't led by a pro head coach. So that that was the kind of situation Peterson was walking into, and I don't think any of the other candidates were in that kind of situation. John, you're around this team every day and have been around this team every day the entire season. What did you learn about Trevor Lawrence this year? I learned that he's extremely resilient. I, I, I think there are a lot of times, you know, Trevor Lawrence probably didn't face much, if any, adversity in his, you know, high school and college career before coming to the pros. He obviously faced a lot of adversity last year, but facing the adversity this year, I think when the national pressure was really being turned up on him, especially after that Denver Broncos game, you know, it felt like nationally everybody kind of gave him a pass for year one with Meyer this year. The criticism was there, and he was able to completely tune that out, completely improve upon himself. And also, you know, I, I thought Trent Baalke put it well yesterday. You know, I, I learned that he's a fearless player. I, you know, he's going to take chances. He's going to be willing to do what it takes to put you in the game. And I, the big thing to me that makes quarterbacks stand out is if, you know, you're down 14 points in the fourth quarter with two drives left, do you think your quarterback can will your team back? I think this year we learned that Trevor Lawrence, you know, can be one of those guys because we've seen Mahomes do it. We've seen Burrow do it. We've seen Allen do it. And I think this year we saw Trevor become one of those guys. A couple of more for John Shipley of Jaguar Report. All right, John, it's all about the future. Now the team reports back April the 17th. Like you said, it will look a little bit different. There's no question about it. Let's kind of go through it. Let's begin with something that already happened. Wide receiver coach. Chris Jackson leaves to take the same job at the University of Texas. Most fans will think eh, wide receiver coach, although I think Jackson did a good job with that core there and with Kirk and Jones and, and everybody involved. Is that an issue for the Jaguars coaching staff? I don't think it's an issue. I, I do think Jackson did a really good job this year. I mean, just watching the way he worked and his attention to detail, not just with the starting receivers, you know, it, it it would be easy for a guy to just focus on, you know, Kirk, Zane, Marvin throughout the week, but he really kind of tried to develop the entire room. And obviously he, the Jaguars, the receiver room had to improve considering the investment they made in it. It'd be a shock if it didn't improve, but you know, from everybody I talked to Jackson was really respected, you know, really, really helpful. Somebody that the receivers really enjoyed working with. So, I do think it's a loss, but I also think it's something, you know, Doug Peterson can weather. I mean, Doug Peterson's, you know, tenure in Philadelphia, he had a new receivers coach almost every year, you know, for different circumstances every time. But it's a position that he was able to turn out and still find success. So, to me, it's not like you're losing a coordinator or, say, a quarterback's coach. It's obviously a loss. But, I mean, with with veteran guys, you know, and Kirk and, and Zay and Calvin Ridley coming in next year, Tim Jones, Somebody's in the system, Jamal Agnew. I think that they'll be able to kind of weather that loss. And, you know, Doug Peterson has a deep Rolodex of guys. He, like, he can be fine to, you know, be the next wide receiver coach. There are other reports that Jim Bob Cooter potentially uh, 
a target for the Tampa Bay Buccaneer offensive coordinator opening. At least they want to talk with him. Anything else you've heard as far as staff that may not be back next year? No, I mean, the, the expectations for the Jaguars, like they, they want to bring back, you know, as many staff members as they can because they've said it over and over. You know, Doug said it Monday, Trent said it Tuesday that, you know, continuity and having, you know, consistent, you know, guys having the same position, coaches, the same scheme entering year two is critical. So I, I, I think that the Jaguars are going to bring back, you know, really as many guys as they can, you know, guys who aren't potentially getting calls because, I, I, I think the Jaguars were extremely happy with, you know, the, the job that the coaching staff did this year because you go up and down the position group. There were young guys that they had to develop, young guys who had to play. So, you know, I, I think any changes to the Jaguars is going to come more personnel than coaching staff. I mean, you might have cases like Jackson who's, you know, leaving for, I'm assuming, you know, Texas is going to pay him a pretty penny to be a receivers coach and then cases like Jim Bob Cooter who you know is getting a look from Tampa Bay I I don't think Press Taylor is going to get maybe next year I don't think he's going to be getting any looks this year anything so I I think overall the coaching staff's going to look mostly the same because that's what they want they want it to be the same because they want that consistency heading into year two of this program all right John let's talk about some players that are unrestricted free agents the team comes back on april 17th will evan ingram be a jaguar on april 17th i do think that he'll be a jaguar i think that there's mutual interest there i think if you know you, you look at the jaguars three agents you know prioritizing them you know evan ingram juan taylor etc i think evan ingram's at the top of the list because it for not just because of his production, but because of who he is and the culture fit that he was, anybody that the Jaguars would get to potentially replace him, they don't know that that guy would fit as well in their program as Ingram did. So I, I think that's mutual interest. Obviously, the money still has to work, but I believe that he will be a Jaguar, and I think he'll get a John U. Smith-level contract from $13, $14 million a year. John Shipley, Jaguar Report, here with us on 1010XL. You mentioned Jawan Taylor. That could be potentially more complicated. He's younger than Ingram, maybe looking for a little more money, and you got the Walker Little factor with Cam Robinson coming back. How do you think that plays itself out here in the next couple of weeks? Yeah, I, I think that the Jaguars may draft the Walker Little. It was you know kind of for a future situation like this, where knowing you had two tackles, contracts expiring, you know, kind of within a year or two of each other. I personally think that the Jaguars are, yeah, they'll have talks, I believe, with Juwan Taylor to kind of see where his, you know, price tag is at. But if you're Juwan Taylor, you know, you, you're uh, one of the youngest tackles that set the hit free agency. You know, he was one of the youngest players in the NFL when he, de- when he declared. You started for four years. You haven't missed a game. You just had the best season of your career. To me, I think you would want to test the market. And I think when he sees what the market has for him, I think the Jaguars are probably going to bow out of that. So my guess is they let Juwan Taylor walk potentially get a compensatory pick for him, which would be their first comp pick in over a decade now, which is wild considering teams like Baltimore and New England are really built on comp picks. And then you see Walker Little start at right tackle if they won next year. And under that scenario, assuming anything doesn't happen on the roster or elsewhere, Cam Robinson, Ben Barge, Luke Fortner, Brandon Scherf, Walker Little would be your starting five opening day? Yeah, I, I, I think so. I think that the Jaguars are going to look at improving left guard. You know, Jaguars struggled in short yardage this year. I think that, you know, we saw throughout the season that, you know, obviously Tyler Shatley, he's a very valuable, you know, 
got to have on your depth chart. Maybe not a 17 game starter. Uh, ben Barkett was unfortunately he got hurt when he did because it was so early in the season that they weren't able to really even evaluate him. So I would think that they add, you know, to the offensive line depth, potentially try to find another left guard to improve in those short yard situations. But my counterpoint is, you know, I've seen a lot of people, you know, talk about taking a left guard at 24 overall, you know, Osiris Torrance, who he's a great prospect, but the Jaguars just had a top 10, you know, offense with a glaring hole at left guard. So it kind of makes you think that while they could and should address it, maybe it doesn't have to be with as big of an investment as people think because they've proven that they can have an effective offense, you know, either way. Last uh, roster spot I'll ask you about, and again, we'll have you on prior to free agency, certainly, but this is what people are thinking about and talking about. Arden Key's a free agent. Roy Robertson Harris, there's a thought they could save some money releasing him. Um, Trayvon Walker, could they potentially move positions with him? How do you think that all unfolds here over the next couple of weeks? Uh, man, Roy Robertson Harris on a tough one just because, like, when you were obviously midseason looking at how they can free up cap, you know, he was an obvious candidate, you know, a guy that you would save money on by moving on from. But his play over the last month, month and a half of the season was inspired. I mean, it was he, he was one of the best not just defenders, he was one of the best players overall. I mean, his performance against the Chargers, he's the only player in NFL playoff history to have four tackles for loss, two pass breakups, and a sack. He was only the seventh player overall to do that, and J.J. Watt has done it like four or five times. So he had J.J. Watt-level performances to end the stretch. So I do think they try to bring him, like try to retain him, whether that's a restructure. I think Trayvon stays on the edge, but what I would be interested in is, you know, do the Jaguars shift their defensive philosophy this offseason and kind of go back to a 4-3 because people think with the 4-3 that you can't, you know, be multiple and disguise your looks. That's not true. I mean, look at the San Francisco 49ers defense. They're based out of a 4-3, and they have as many exotic pressure looks and coverage looks as anybody in the NFL. But And I personally believe that their, their personnel that they have fits a 4-3 more than then a 3-4, I think Trayvon, you want to keep him on the edge. You can put him inside on passing downs. But I think that he can thrive as a 4-3 defensive end. So I think they keep the personnel. But I'm interested to see if they, you know, kind of change how they maybe utilize it. Because we saw how they changed it toward the end of the year. And that's when the defense got better. John Shipley of Jaguar Report. John, we're out of time. 60 seconds to go. When we reconvene in July for training camp, and we'll certainly talk to you many times before then, but when July comes back around and we're all there on the sidelines on opening day of training camp and we're talking about the 2022 season, what are the one or two things you'll remember most? Yeah, no, I'll definitely remember that Jaguar is able to come back, you know, in so many of these games, you know, being there live to see the wins against the Ravens, the Cowboys, the Titans, the Chargers. Those are the games I'll never forget. And then, just this locker room. I thought this was, you know, my four years covering them. You know, I've enjoyed locker rooms, coaching staffs, but I thought this was the best locker room in terms of, you know, as a reporter to work with. So those are things I'm really going to remember about the season. And this is always going to be one of the seasons of my career that I enjoyed covering the most. John Shipley of Jaguar Report, the part of Sports Illustrated. John, we'll have you on this offseason, certainly when – developments warrant brother thank you so much for being gracious with your time with us so many times this year and we'll talk soon i appreciate you my friend there you go john shipley of jaguar report here on hacker after dark as the jaguars uh you know look 
Uh, reality is here. The season is over, and the conversation will get heated and heated and heated over the next six weeks or so until we find out if the Jaguars use the franchise tag. That is an option, right, for either Evan Ingram or Jawan Taylor. Although, listening to Trent Balky yesterday in his season-ending press conference, you got the vibe that that really wasn't something they wanted to do. Uh, but if they need to use it, it is an option. And, and the question is, and it'll be one we banter about for a while, if you could only keep one, who do you want? Evan Ingram or Jawan Taylor? Uh, because I think that's where it's going to land. I think one of those guys will be back. I think one of those guys will be gone. And, uh, you know, it's easy to say Evan Ingram, but Trevor Lawrence is pretty important, and I know the receivers that catch the ball are, are very important to that, but Trevor Lawrence being upright is pretty darn important too. And Jawan Taylor is a big part of that there at right tackle. More on the Jaguars coming up in about 20 minutes. Ryan Roberts, Rise and Draft. You know, that's one of my websites this time of year, that's the letter N, riseanddraft.com. He's set to join us at about 9 o'clock. I will update you guys on some college basketball for all you Mike White lovers that did not want him to show in the door in Gainesville. Uh, Georgia is in Knoxville tonight, and they're losing by 29. Tennessee, 62-33 over Georgia. Meanwhile, in Gainesville, 10 minutes to go. Todd Golden and the Gators are absolutely destroying South Carolina, 62-39. So Florida is about to go to 12-8, and 5-3 in the Southeastern Conference. That will put them at 5-1 uh, and one in their last six conference games. So Gator basketball team finding themselves a little bit here late in the month of January. 641-1010 is the phone number on the phone line and on the text line. Designed by Lifetime Enclosures. Also, we are streaming, as we always are, for your viewing pleasure, Jacksonville. Just go to YouTube. Type in 1010XL on YouTube. You'll see Hacker After Dark there. Until 10 o'clock tonight, likewise on Twitter. At 1010XL on Twitter, you'll see the show streaming there. Until 10 o'clock this evening. With Dylan Denmark, the Hacker Ryan Green with you, we will go around the world of the National Football League there's some championship games coming up on Sunday. It's not Arrowhead anymore. It's Burrowhead. At least that's what they're saying in Cincinnati. Hmm. That's next on Hacker After Dark. This is Hacker After Dark on 1010XL. You know, unfortunately, the Jaguar season came to an end on Saturday at Arrowhead Stadium in Kansas City. But... <clears throat> there is Championship Sunday, and we'll actually go to Kansas City tomorrow night. Jed Marshall, Sports Radio 610. You know, I'm curious to get Jed on because, like, a show like mine, we spend so much time the week of the game talking to the opposition. I want to go back to Kansas City to get their take on the game, get their take on the Jaguars, and obviously talk about the Mahomes injury, what it means moving forward. So we'll go out to Kansas City tomorrow and do that with Jed Marshall. But Patrick Mahomes is the big story, or at least one of the big stories. A high ankle sprain. He practiced in full today, which I can't believe, but he did. I mean, he says he's good to go. 
for the championship game on Sunday. It's a big game for Patrick Mahomes. Patrick Mahomes has been the king of the NFL universe for a long time. When you say who's the best quarterback in the National Football League, you say Patrick Mahomes, and you have for probably the last two or three years. Maybe a sprinkling of Aaron Rodgers in there, maybe a sprinkling of Josh Allen in there, but by and large, the overwhelming response you would have gotten for the better part of the last three years, the best quarterback in the league is Patrick Mahomes. Will you be able to say that on Sunday night if Joe Burrow beats him again? Joe Burrow is 3-0 and against Patrick Mahomes. If Burrow goes back to Arrowhead for the second straight year in Patrick Mahomes' house and wins the second straight AFC championship to then be 4-0 and head-to-head against Mahomes... At that point, I don't know how you can say anything, but Joe Burrow is the best quarterback in the National Football League. They are a confident group in Cincinnati. We'll go to Cincinnati, too, probably on Friday, get the Bengals' take on this championship matchup. But they are calling Arrowhead Burrowhead because of the success that Joe Burrow and the Bengals had there last year. The fact they've beaten Kansas City three times in a row. And the fact that a lot of people, regardless of the fact that it's in Arrowhead, regardless of the fact that Andy Reid has now won 20 postseason games as an NFL head coach, doesn't it feel like Cincinnati It would kind of be surprising if they don't win on Sunday night? Joe Burrow was fantastic last week. Absolutely sensational. Buffalo's got a lot of looking to do in the mirror. You got to wonder if you're Buffalo, that window of opportunity has been wide open. Is that thing starting to come down? They can't seem to get past the divisional round. And Cincinnati just goes into their house and pushes them around. And Joe Burrow, Jamar Chase, T. Higgins, Joe Mixon, that is a really, really good and a really, really confident Cincinnati Bengal ball club going to Arrowhead. But again, if Burrow beats Mahomes for the fourth time in a row in his 4-0 lifetime, I think at that point, if you're not there already, you got to say, yeah, Joe Burrow is probably the best quarterback in the National Football League. On the NFC side of things, there's all sorts of interesting things happening with San Francisco. 49ers defensive end Charles Omenihue is apparently set to play on Sunday despite the fact that he has been charged on suspicion of domestic violence. Um, There's a lot of rumors he allegedly got into an altercation where he allegedly pushed his girlfriend to the ground, was arrested by the police out there in San Francisco, Bailed out, obviously, and uh, the legal course will not take effect by Sunday. So all indications are, at least right now, he's going to play. Uh, Charles Omenihue has been an important part of that 49er team, right? Four and a half sacks on the year, two sacks came in that wild card win over Seattle. Innocent until proven guilty. There's no question about that. You guys have heard me harp on that 
time and time again. Unfortunately, in this country, that's not really the way it is anymore. It's supposed to be innocent until proven guilty. That's a slippery slope, though, if you're San Francisco. You got to wonder if this was regular season game number six, if he's playing on Sunday. No, it's the NFC championship game. So we'll see what ultimately happens. Christian McCaffrey and Elijah Mitchell, two running backs for the 49ers, held out of practice today. Both battling injuries. Both appear that they are going to play on Sunday. You know, as much time as we've spent talking about Joe Burrow and Patrick Mahomes, and I'm guilty of it, right? I let off the segment by it. As much time as we've dedicated to Jalen Hurts, boy, this Brock Purdy story is one for the ages. Not the second-team quarterback, the third-team quarterback, Mr. Irrelevant. 250-plus players were drafted before him. San Francisco takes Brock Purdy with the final pick in the draft, and he is now one win away from the Super Bowl. It is an amazing story. Unfortunately for him, he's got to go to Philadelphia to probably the best team in the NFC, maybe the best team in pro football, and they have been all year, the Philadelphia Eagles. That is going to be, (coughs) excuse me, a tall order for San Francisco and Brock Purdy. But if he pulls it off, and if they get that win, my goodness, what a story that would be. Did you see the NFL awards ceremonies is going to be – the Friday night before the Super Bowl, or maybe the Saturday before the Super Bowl, the finalists have come out for all these different awards. We'll get the coach of the year in a moment. That's where Doug Peterson resides on the ballot. Your finalists for MVP are Bills quarterback Josh Allen, Bengals quarterback Joe Burrow, Chiefs quarterback Patrick Mahomes, Eagles quarterback Jalen Hurts, and Vikings wide receiver Justin Jefferson. Mahomes will probably win it because I'm pretty sure they've already voted for it. But again, if Burrow beats him again, I'm going Joe Burrow all day in that argument moving forward. Offensive player of the year, Mahomes, Hurts, Tyreek Hill, Justin Jefferson. Boy, Justin Jefferson did have a ridiculous year in Minnesota. Your defensive player of the year finalists, Micah Parsons, Nick Bosa, and Chris Jones. The Jaguars know all about Chris Jones, the Kansas City big offense or defensive lineman. Offensive rookie of the year, Brock Purdy, Kenneth Walker, Garrett Wilson. That should be Brock Purdy by default. Defensive rookie of the year, nope, no Trayvon Walker, no Devin Lloyd, obviously. Aiden Hutchinson, Sauce Gardner, Tariq Wooten. Your comeback player of the year, Geno Smith, Christian McCaffrey, or Saquon Barkley. And that gets us to coach of the year. Sean McDermott, Buffalo. Nick Sirianni, Philadelphia. Kyle Shanahan of the 49ers. Brian Dable of the Giants. Doug Peterson here in Jacksonville. All due respect, McDermott, Sirianni, Shanahan, and Dable. They have all done fantastic jobs in their own right. Take nothing away from them. Doug Peterson's the coach of the year. And yeah, maybe I am biased. Maybe I have my teal and black blinders on. Doug Peterson inherited a nightmare left by Urban Meyer. He cleaned up the nightmare. He changed the locker room. They were three and seven. They were four and eight. 
and he got them to win the AFC South and had the third largest comeback in pro football playoff history against the Chargers. There is not a coach that did a better job amidst the circumstances than Doug Peterson right here in Jacksonville. I don't think he's going to win because obviously he's going up against coaches in much bigger markets that people saw a lot more on television. But Doug Peterson absolutely deserves it and should be the coach of the year. That is NFL News and Notes for this Wednesday night, the 25th day of January. Coming up next, Ryan Roberts, Rise and Draft, the letter N, riseanddraft.com. Let's talk Trevor, Doug Peterson, the other young players on this Jaguar nucleus, and let's take a brief look ahead to the 2023 draft class. Positions that are good, positions that are bad of this draft class with Ryan Roberts. That's next. Hacker After Dark on a Wednesday in Jacksonville. We're glad you're with us. Hello. Another great guest on the Farrah and Farrah phone line. Brought to you by the accident attorneys at Farrah and Farrah. Back here on 1010XL and 92.5 FM in the city of Jacksonville. We are glad you are with us. The Jaguar season has now come to an end. We start to reflect back on the season that was. And that wheel never stops spinning. We start looking ahead at the offseason and things that will come. With that, let's welcome in Ryan Roberts. He's one of our draft guys here on 1010XL. Rise and Draft, the letter N, riseanddraft.com. And he's always kind enough to join us here on 1010XL. Ryan, how we doing? I'm doing well, man. I'm doing well. How's everything on your end? Ryan, we're good, man. We are good. You and I talked a couple of times during the year. Obviously, we didn't talk uh, since Jacksonville made that late season run. From your perspective, what was your take on Trevor Lawrence and everything that happened here in Jacksonville over the last two months. I, I mean, I think it was a, it was a great, you know, big step for the, for the program from where it was, you know, just a year ago, obviously with the whole urban Meyer debacle and you get a guy like a Doug Peterson in who, you know, you know, he's going to bring consistency. He's going to bring a plan. He's going to have a thorough understanding of where you are and where you need to get to. And I think that he, did a great job with Trevor in year one, you know, because there's a lot of quarterbacks that I think dealing with what Trevor and this organization dealt with, you know, in 2021 would have, you know, kind of crumbled a little bit, you know, would have taken a massive step back. But I think you saw the resiliency, obviously, of a Trevor Lawrence, which is part of what makes him special, in my opinion. It's not just about, you know, what you see from an arm strength perspective, size, all that great stuff. I mean, that stuff is easily quantifiable, but I think it's the resiliency that he showed going from year one to year two and what Doug Peterson has cooking down there, man. I I think it's heading in a really good direction. And I think you saw that there was a lot more talent in the room than maybe what you, what you left 2021 feeling just because I think that when you have more consistency up top, it allows the talent to really show itself underneath of them. Ryan, you guys study everything when you look at these prospects, and I got to tell you, the leadership that Trevor Lawrence has displayed over the last two years with the fiasco with Urban Meyer, and he was the guy that basically had to answer all the questions at the podium. It was an unfair position to put a rookie quarterback in, 
And then this year, everything he had to deal with, and there's a video in Arrowhead on Saturday after the game is over, Trevor standing in the tunnel, just consoling basically every teammate walking back to the locker room. That'll be the video that really sticks with me this entire offseason. I mean, that is a 23-year-old displaying that type of leadership. I was I was very impressed by that. Yeah, I mean, that's, I think that's a separator, right? Like, that's a big separator because, again, like, there's plenty of players in the NFL at the quarterback position that end up not making it or, you know, materializing. And it has nothing to do with talent, you know? Like, there's not a lack of talent in the past of guys like Blaine Gabbard and Jake Locker. And, I mean, there's been a lot of talent that's come through and just hasn't been successful. But what separates Trevor Lawrence, and I think that you hit on it, the leadership, the resiliency – because one thing that I know people talked about when he was drafted to Jacksonville is like the kid just never lost much, you know, like he didn't lose much at Clemson. He didn't lose much coming out of high school in the state of Georgia. Like the kid just always been used to winning. And when you taste a little bit of not being successful for a stretch, you know, how does someone respond? And I think that you have seen not only from year one to year two, the resiliency and the leadership qualities that he has, which is the separator for him, you know, just from on top of being extremely talented, but you even see it in the playoff game, you know, the first playoff game where he throws four interceptions in the first half. And, and most most players, most quarterbacks would go in the tank. They would feel sorry for themselves and they would just, you know, not play well for the rest of the game. But to throw four interceptions in half and then come back and then put the second half performance that he has in a massive comeback, you know, like th- that stuff, I think, just quantifies further just the resiliency and the leadership that this young man has. The fact that he's only 23, like you said, the future is very bright. I mean, he was the highest graded quarterback that I've ever had just from a physical standpoint. But then you add in the fact that I think that he does have tremendous character, tremendous leadership qualities. And I, I mean, he's the, he's going to be the face of the franchise. So I, I don't see how you can leave 2022, although it obviously didn't end in the most recent playoff the way that you would have wanted it. I don't see how you leave and say, you know, that the future isn't extremely bright in Jacksonville, and Trevor Lawrence is obviously a big reason for that. Ryan Roberts here with us. Rise and Draft, the letter N, riseanddraft.com. Always kind enough to join us on 1010XL. Ryan, let's look at two other offensive guys that are pretty young that you studied, and that was Travis Etienne and Luke Fortner. Travis Etienne, uh, I think, what, 1,400 yards from scrimmage roughly this year? had a dynamic year, and Luke Fortner, all he did was start 19 games his rookie season at center. Unbelievably impressive. Yeah, I mean, and ETN was very high, highly graded for me. I actually had him graded higher than Najee Harris coming out. I was a big, big fan of Travis ETN, unfortunately, with the rookie injury. He wasn't able to show it, you know, in 2021, but I think you saw everything – this year, that gives you high hopes for the future for a guy like a Travis Etienne. He's incredibly explosive, decisive, will get downhill. I know he had a little bit of a fumbling issue, which he had, you know, also at Clemson. But as long as he cleans that up more and be and is more consistent from a ball security perspective, I mean, the kid is just super dynamic as a football player. And I love that he has kind of a no-nonsense approach on top of being a – four four athletes you know like the kid can go you know he gets a little crease and he can take it to the house but he also really doesn't dance much you know like he's getting downhill he's going to be physical with how he runs 
So him running over a thousand yards in his second year after coming back from, you know, obviously the lower body injury the year before, I think was foundational for a team like Jacksonville and having his running mate in the backfield with Trevor Lawrence for the foreseeable future, I think is going to be big time. And like you mentioned with Luke Fortner, I, I think that, you know, when he was at Kentucky, I mean, he was part of a really good offensive line with Darian Kennard, who was drafted by the Kansas City Chiefs. And, and they were a staple of consistency for Kentucky the year before. And I think that you that's what you saw for Jacksonville this year. You know, like the kid is a tough physical dude. There was, you know, there was obviously up and downs. Like there's always going to be R- rookie offensive lineman. Like, that's a tough transition. But the fact to come in, and start every game for a playoff team that got to the second round of the playoffs and had a lot of success. I think that speaks volumes for Fortner, you know, as forecasting long-term here, you know, I know, I know you have a couple pretty nice pieces on the offensive line moving forward to pair with him. So as long as you continue to build from the inside out, I think that's how great football teams are usually built. So, you know, hats off to Fortner for the season that he was able to put together and blocking for guys like Trevor Lawrence and Travis Etienne for the foreseeable future is going to be nice for Jacksonville. Ryan, what was your assessment of Trayvon Walker? I mean, I, I I didn't see much out of Trayvon this year that I wasn't expecting in year one, to be honest. Like, I know people were, you know, kind of hit or miss on it. Like, some people, I, I think some people are down because they see the just the raw sack number. And, you know, they, they, they know that. He, but I think that when you looked at where he was coming out of Georgia, you knew that it was a long way to go as a pass rusher, you know? Like, you knew that he has physicality he has incredibly long arms he's a very gifted athlete but he isn't going to be a kid that's going to be the best version of himself in year one like that just was never going to happen Aiden Hutchinson and those dudes were going to be better year one than Trayvon Walker and I think most people understood that right like for Trayvon Walker it's about year three year four when you're really hopefully in you know a Super Bowl contending team for Jacksonville over the next few years here that's when you want Trayvon to really take that next step. So I think you still saw flashes, but I don't think that, again, like I'm not, I'm not leaving this year. And, you know, I, I mean, we talked about this on the show before, right? Like I was, I would never have taken Trayvon Walker with the first overall pick because there's going to be inherent, there's going to be an initial inherent expectations for a player like that. And I just didn't think he was ever going to be able to live up to that. But the, the point blank period to it is, is that I do not leave his rookie year less optimistic for what the long term is because I think that the first year was never going to be a full comprehensive understanding of what Trayvon Walker is going to be. He's always going to be better in year two, year three, year four. Needs to continue to develop, obviously. But I, I really think that this was par for the course as far as what the expectations should have been and what they ended up being. Ryan Roberts, riseanddraft.com. You look also on defense along with Trayvon Walker. A lot of young pieces from Andre Sisco to Tyson Campbell, Devin Lloyd, Chad Muma. It appears the future is pretty bright on the defensive side of the ball. Yeah, and I was happy to see that Andre Sisco really, I think, had a, a, a nice second year from everything that I saw because I was big on him coming out, man. I know he was dealing with the injury, obviously, going into the draft process, but and there's so there was at least a lot of inconsistencies as a tackler, but I really loved the dynamic ability and coverage that he had and seemed like he took a, a pretty nice little step with Jacksonville this year. I still think there's a lot of room to to improve in that regard, but I think that you're optimistic about the future of Andre Cisco. Tyson Campbell's a kid that I was completely wrong about, to be honest. Like he in year two, I thought that he really showed better ball skills, better ability to track the football in the air and 
you know, there was never any question about Tyson Campbell from a height, weight, speed conversation coming out of Georgia. Like the kid's a freak show from an athleticism perspective. I just worried about his ability to play the ball down the field, to get his head turned, to make plays on the football. But he's done a much better job at that, obviously, especially this year for Jacksonville. So, I mean, he's a main, he's going to be a mainstay on that defense for the next few years. You need to figure out the linebacker position. I mean, I know we talked about Devin Lloyd, you know, kind of was very up and down, obviously, in his, his rookie year. But I still think that the future could be bright for him. Chad Muma, I mean, I know Josh Allen is kind of like the old guy of the group now, but even he's still pretty young. So I think that there's a really nice core being built on the defensive side of the football. I think you saw throughout the season there was a lot of really nice stretches. It needs to be more consistent, obviously. But I really do think that there's a great core defensively for Jacksonville to build off of. You know, Ryan, obviously we don't know what's going to happen with free agency, with Evan Ingram, Jawan Taylor. There's certainly some things to figure out there. But the way it looks right now, just on the surface, it appears the Jaguars could use some help at cornerback. It appears the Jaguars potentially could use some help maybe along the defensive line, depending on what happens with Evan Ingram, maybe a tight end. How would you assess defensive back, D-line, tight end coming into the 2023 draft yeah I mean I think cornerback especially you know just kind of kicking off there I, I think that cornerback there's not really a guy that I would be happy with taking the top 10 to 15 this year which obviously doesn't really matter to Jacksonville with where they're picking but I think that what Jacksonville is going to be in a pretty decent spot as long as things kind of materialize the way I think it is is that there's a lot of depth to the cornerback group this year, right? Like there's not, I don't think there's a really a premier player at the top, but I think when you're talking about picking, you know, in the twenties, like there's going to be guys like Clark Phillips of the worlds and, and the, you know, the really talented, uh, you know, I mean, you're going to see guys like Cam Smith potentially there, Joey Porter jr. Depending on how things fall. Emmanuel Forbes, I think is a really talented football player, but even to the second, third round, I think that this cornerback group, is really, really impressive So from a depth perspective. So I think if Jacksonville needs guys to be able to play year one, I think there's going to be plenty of names. I mean, I think the dream, although he might not fit into what the standard is for Jacksonville as far as what they like at the cornerback position, like if Clark Phillips, though, is staring at you in the 20s there, just kind of staring you in the face and saying like, hey, man, I'm a ready-made corner to go opposite Tyson Campbell. I might, not, I might be a little shorter than what you're really looking for, but I'm a really good football player that could help a playoff team kind of take the next step. You know, like a kid like that, I think would be fantastic. But so I think the cornerback group just in general is going to be a really good situation for Jacksonville. Um, you know, the edge spot, if you're looking for a guy that's more of like an outside track type of pass rusher, I, I don't know if that spot's going to be tremendous. Cause I mean, you could look at guys like BJ, BJ Ojolari from, from LSU is a really talented player. I know Will McDonald from, Iowa State's a kid that I'm pretty high on, but, it, you know, it does taper off a little bit. There's good depth second to third round, in my opinion, from a defensive line perspective. But I do think that late first round, it might be a little bit of a tough area if, if that's the spot you're going to. But there's still quality of depth, obviously, throughout. Tight end is a really weird mix <laughs> this year, to be honest. Like, you have Michael Mayer, I think, who is a slam dunk first round pick. But then you have guys like, Darnell Washington, Dalton Kincaid, who some people are projecting to be in the first round, but I think they're more day two type of football players. So, I mean, but if you're Jacksonville and you think that, you know, if Evan Ingram's not coming back and you ha are potentially a tight end away from really pushing this offense from, you know, a really nice young team that's 
you know, pushing your way up to a potentially elite team, maybe you take a shot on a Dalton Darnell Washington or a Dalton Kincaid, you know, somewhere in the, the late first round. I mean, there's conversation piece there. So I think that tight end definitely has some depth. The cornerback has depth. And defensive end, honestly, does have depth. I think it's just more second, third round type of depth comparative to late first round type of depth. Ryan, as we wrap up, we got about two minutes to go. It's weird. By now, you and I would have talked like three or four times in late January. But because the Jaguars actually were good this year, we're off to kind of a late start on this whole draft process. How would you assess the class overall? The, the biggest strength by position and maybe the biggest weakness by position? Yeah, it's a little bit of a weird draft, to be honest, Ryan, because it's it's like last year with, with the COVID year, the extra COVID year everyone's had, it's it's really kind of one class to the next. It's really wonked out the numbers a little bit. I remember last year there was like 2,100 players in the, in the 2022 NFL draft. That's comparative to usually there's around like 750-ish. So, I mean, there was almost three times as many players in last year's class compared to this one. There was only, I believe, if I remember correctly, like 69 players that entered early in this draft. So I think it's going to be a little bit of a smaller draft class. And so I think that that's going to affect depth a little bit. But, I mean, for me, the best depth in this class, I think running back is a tremendous class. I think that edge is a tremendous class, especially with depth. I think cornerback is a good class, especially with depth. Those are kind of the spots that I look at and say, like, that's probably where you're going to get the most value throughout the draft. But the, the spots that I kind of have not been in love with so far this year is wide receiver and off and offensive tackle. I think that there's some people that have kind of hyped those positions up, but I genuinely just do not see it. Like, there's just not – there's some talent in offensive tackle, but there's just not – there's not as much depth as what I feel like there typically is. And then at wide receiver, I mean, we've had two historical wide receiver drafts back-to-back years – and I just don't see it with this class. Like, I just there, – there might be one or two guys that I would even consider in the first round in general, and there's definitely nobody that I would take top 15. So, I think it's a little bit of a down year from offensive tackles, wide receivers, but I think that there's still quality of depth in, in spots like the running back, defensive end, and cornerback this year in 2023. Ryan Roberts, riseanddraft.com. The season just ended, but the draft process now officially begins – here in Jacksonville. Ryan, always appreciate the time, man. We'll talk again soon. Thank you very much. Absolutely, brother. I appreciate you. Hacker After Dark on 1010XL. Yes, it is. Wednesday night, Jacksonville, Florida. Glad you're with us. We're about to go to Gainesville. Andrew Spivey, GatorCountry.com. Talking mainly football, the Jaden Rashada situation, which was just a fiasco. Where does that leave Florida in the quarterback room moving forward? Uh, Gator fans, you know you. You know how you are. I know how you are. We all know how you are. Napier went 6-7 and seven last year. You can say anything you want. If they're 6-7 and seven again this year, you're going to be talking. It's not going to be fair, I don't think, but they're going to be talking. You're going to be talking. You look at that schedule at Utah, at LSU, at South Carolina, Tennessee, Georgia, Florida State. Don't get boat race. Man, it is uh, going to be very interesting if it's Graham Mertz, the transfer from Wisconsin. 
on the hardwood tonight, the Gator basketball team, another win. They beat South Carolina. That's five out of six for the Gators in the Southeastern Conference, their last six conference games. Their one loss was like a three-point loss, I believe, to A&M. So Todd Golden finding his footing a little bit. The uh, non-conference was not as good as you would have liked, but now 12-8 and eight for Florida, 5-3 and three in the Southeastern Conference. Todd Golden in year number one, starting to put a couple of things together for Florida. Something we'll get more into tomorrow night on the college gridiron. College football news never ends here on Hacker After Dark. It is amazing the number and quality of coaches that have just finished year three heading into year four. The likes of Sam Pittman at Arkansas, Dave Aranda at Baylor, Lane Kiffin at Ole Miss, Mel Tucker, Michigan State, Mike Norvell at Florida State, Eli Drinkowitz, Missouri, Greg Schiano at Rutgers. Just go on down the line. How the guys have fared three years in. Lane Kiffin, probably the master of that class, right? With what he's done. Mike Norvell turned things around in a big, big way for Florida State. We'll talk about that tomorrow night, where Norvell kind of sits among those coaches entering year four in their current college football jobs. It is a Wednesday night on Hacker After Dark. Let's get into the college game. Let's go to Gainesville. Andrew Spivey, GatorCountry.com. Talking Florida athletics with you next on Hacker After Dark. Back here on 1010XL and 92.5 FM in the city of Jacksonville. We are glad you are with us. Now that the Jaguar season is in the rearview mirror, you take a look at the landscape of local and regional sports, and there is a ton going on over in Gainesville with the University of Florida. The basketball team is actually playing a little better than they have been to this point this year, and the Jaden Rashada situation in Gainesville, just absolutely incredible. With that, Let's head to Gainesville, Florida. Our man Andrew Spivey, GatorCountry.com, always kind enough to join us here on 1010XL in Jacksonville. Andrew, it's been a little while, man. How are you? I'm good. Just enjoying uh, enjoying football. Uh, was enjoying your Jags. And, uh, you know, I, I am a Falcons fan, but uh, I was quietly rooting for the Jags to uh, pull off the upset. Out of curiosity over there in Gainesville, was uh, – the Jaguar run, did they, uh, you know, garner some fans over in that part of the state? Yeah, you know, I, I feel like the, the, the Jags are a team that, uh, you know, a lot of Florida fans root for, uh, you know, and, and for, uh, Jacksonville has a, has a couple of Gators, uh, Juwan Taylor being one of those. And uh, I, I feel like it is, uh, it definitely is. Uh, you know, it was, uh, I think, a, a, a little bit of they still dislike urban meyer so for the jacks of fire urban meyer might have made them bigger fans uh for uh for that uh but yeah definitely and uh you know obviously the, the bucks being out helps a little bit um and the dolphins being out helps a little bit but uh i i felt like especially on our message board there was a lot of rooting interest uh for the jags uh on saturday andrew spivey of gator country Dot com. All right, Andrew, I haven't talked to you since the Rashada, I guess we'll call it a debacle, happened. Uh, let's take it from the top. Uh, for those that have forgotten 
He originally commits to Miami. This is the five-star quarterback from California. Originally commits to Miami. In the middle of the night, decommits from Miami and commits to Florida, and everything's looking great. Signs a letter of intent with the Gators and then asks Al, and every indication is because it's an NIL problem. Um, take it from there. What can you tell us? What exactly happened? Yeah. I mean, you know, there was a little a little debacle on signing day. Um, he was supposed to sign his letter of intent um, around noon Eastern time, which would have been 9 a.m. back in Cali. Uh, it was about 6 30 don't quote me on that but around that when the the nil actually uh, or the letter of intent actually came in uh billy napier's press conference had to be delayed a little bit uh as there was some back and forth on the nil of uh you know what was going to be promised yada 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 on signing day uh they got that figured out enough for him to sign. Uh, he comes to Orlando and Under Armour. Uh, we're there for check-in. Uh, he tells us he's leaving straight from Under Armour, and uh, him and his family are going to spend a couple days in Orlando, and then they're leaving straight from Orlando and headed to check in Gainesville for his uh, to enroll early and and be there for the spring semester. Uh, fast forward to that Friday when he was supposed to be enrolled, and he's not enrolled. And, um, he is, uh, you know, MIA. Uh, so the, the questions get, you know, even tougher and, uh, you start asking around and it's definitely an NIL promise that, um, uh, wasn't kept, uh, on, um, on the Gator Collective and, and, and some other people on that side, uh, had promised some things and those people are no longer involved in things. And so, uh, a lot of people were kind of caught off guard by the promises that were made, uh, and Rashada refuses to, to sign. And, um, you know, it's not a Billy Napier problem in, in my opinion, uh, simply because Billy Napier doesn't negotiate these contracts. Uh, you know, I, I do think Scott Strickland deserves a little bit of the, uh, blame here, uh, and, and the people who signed that contract to, to do that. I, at the end of the day, Ryan, I think what it is is exactly what we all know it is. And the NCAA doesn't want to admit it is, is pay for play. That's what it is. Andrew Spivey, GatorCountry.com. Andrew, I've seen a lot of people on Twitter, uh, opposing teams, websites, things of that sort, just breaking Florida over the coals and the Gator Collective over the coals. I mean, this is a horrific look, right? There's no other way to slice it. This, Regardless of whose fault it is, this is a terrible look for the University of Florida, correct? Oh, absolutely. It's a, it's a, it looks like uh, you're an amateur. Uh, it looks like that Florida doesn't hold their end of the promises. And, you know, heading into uh, this cycle, you know, there was a lot of people talking about how Miami didn't uphold their promises, about how checks were bouncing from uh, from Miami and how uh, people that were promised certain numbers weren't getting that. You know, Texas A&M had that problem. Now it's a Florida problem. And, you know, it, it's, a, it's a bad look because – your, your boosters who, for the most part, are doing a good job, uh, look terrible. The Gator Collective, who was supposed to be really good, kind of looks what they are, which was dysfunctional from the get-go. Uh, anybody who ever said that they were doing a good job was crazy. Uh, they were dysfunctional from the beginning, uh, and, and it just makes you look like you're promising stuff that you can't. And then, you know, when you hear the numbers, you know, you have to start to wonder, okay – 
if if I'm you know anybody on the team, if I'm Montreal Johnson or Trevor Etienne, and I hear that you know Florida's Gator Collective was about to pay a quarterback seven million dollars. You know, you, you have to wonder how that affects the locker room as well. Um, you know, it, it, the good news is, is it didn't affect a guy like DJ Lockway, but it did it hurt a little bit in recruiting. Some guys are definitely talking about it. Guys are definitely questioning, okay, if I, you know, get promised this number from Florida, am I actually going to get it? You know, and that's not a question you want to be out there because other teams are going to use it. Uh, Ryan, you and I have been in this business a long time. Teams use whatever they can against you and negative recruit against you in any way, shape, or form. This is national news. It's everywhere. Uh, it's easy. It's easy for a coach uh, for another team now to plant that seed in somebody's head of, oh, Florida's not going to give you what they want, what you're, they're telling you. They're lying to you. Until Florida proves that differently, it's going to be out there. Andrew Spivey, GatorCountry.com. Andrew, I'm, I'm not sure about this, so I'm going to ask you. Let's imagine a world where there's a quarterback from, I don't know, let's say California, that has signed a letter of intent, and there was an agreed-to uh, amount of money in an NIL, and then he happens to go to an all-star game. Let's say that all-star game is in, I don't know, Orlando, and is very good and is one of the best guys there. And then maybe the team around said quarterback – Maybe he wants to change what was agreed to. Um, is there any any validity to something that like that that may or may not have happened? Yeah, it is, uh, and and that's that's what we've been told. Um, I, again, it's because of what the there was people that were running the collective and and other associates out there working behind the scenes on this Rashada deal that a lot of people were unaware of. They made promises to the Rashada camp, uh, whether that was to Jaden himself, to his father, or to his representatives. And, you know, you had that happen. And then when it came time to pony up that, those guys were nowhere to be found. And Florida, the people who were supposed to be handling that are like, yeah, that's not what we agreed to. Uh, so, you know, you reneged on your contract a little bit, uh, if you're Florida, uh, but the people who initially agreed to that are gone. They don't have to answer for what they're for what they cost. Moving forward with the football team, um, they got a real problem at quarterback, right? And is there anything that can be done about that at this point? No, I mean honestly, no. There's there's not. Um, you know, unless you're able to go out and you know, land a, you know, a, a transfer quarterback after, you know, this is all over with in the spring, unless you're able to go out and land one in the, in the summertime. And, you know, the chances of landing a really good quarterback in the summertime that, you know, is going to come in and play uh, and, and be better than what you have. And I know that sounds crazy, but, you know, to, there's not going to be a, a quarterback that really leaves their team because they're unhappy with their team. They're going to leave their team because they're unhappy with, you know, where they're at in the depth chart, which, you know, do you really want seconds of everyone else's uh, player? So, you know, yeah, Ford is kind of just stuck with what they have. And and that's Graham Mertz and, and Jack Miller and uh, Max Brown. And, you know, they, they picked up a couple of preferred walk-on quarterbacks to kind of help a little bit with depth. Uh, but, you know, nothing that's going to really, you know, set the world on fire as far as, okay, you should be scared of this. Uh, you know, obviously Graham Mertz has the potential 
to go out and, and, and to be a good player. Um, can he? We'll see. Uh, you know, I, we all know what he was rated coming out of high school, and, and it was very good. Uh, he just didn't perform uh, at uh, Wisconsin. You know, and look, uh, nothing against Graham Mertz, but you're talking to people in the Big Ten, and I'm sure you've talked to people in the Big Ten that covered him at Wisconsin. I mean, I guess my concern is that the Florida Gators are going into a season in which they open up on Labor Day weekend against Utah in Salt Lake City, and they might have the second coming of Austin Appleby. And nothing against Austin Appleby, but we remember how that season went. He was a transfer, I believe, from Purdue. This kind of feels like that, Andrew, does it not? Yeah, I mean, you know, I mean, are you getting, you know, Jack Miller 2.0, you know, a a situation where a guy comes in and, you know, just isn't really ready to play and and isn't good enough to be your starting quarterback. Maybe he's good enough to be your backup, but not your starting quarterback. Uh, You know, can you can you have that? And, you know, I think the biggest thing for me is this and that is, you know, Next year is big for Billy Napier. It's big for Billy Napier in, in a couple of reasons. A, you cannot be sub-500 again. You, you, you simply can't. Uh, you can't put a product on the field that's not good. You, you, you simply can't. Uh, you can't for the reasons of you're in year two, but you also can't because you have a, a recruiting class that has the potential next year to be really, really good. You know, If you continue to have these seasons where they're just – okay then you're you're going to run into a situation where teams again start to negative recruit you a little bit start to go out and and say okay they're just not that good uh and things are going to fall apart really quickly for billy napier uh you know he has to believe a little bit in 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 mertz because he he, you know he picked him uh in this uh in the portal and, and decided to take him and he understands the pressure as well uh, so I, here's hoping he sees something and uh, notice something that he can fix that we all just haven't noticed and, and don't know about. Final moments here with Andrew Spivey, GatorCountry.com. Andrew, there were a lot more guys that left Florida via the portal than came in via the portal. And I know you got the freshman class as well, but I think everybody expected Florida to be a lot more active, not just at quarterback, but really everywhere. Would you classify what they've done in the portal so far as a disappointment? Um, yes and no. Um, you know, I, I, I don't know that I am going to sit here and tell you, uh, Ryan, that who they lost was a disappointment. Uh, you know, I think for the most part, everybody they lost, they were okay with losing. And for the most part, everybody they lost were guys that were, you know, not really SEC guys. Was there a couple that they lost that, you know, kind of question okay well why'd they let him go yes there is but for the majority of it no I, I I don't think it was a big loss I think you cleared house on a lot of guys that were just uh you know kind of taking up space uh I do think you know in a way yes it was a little bit of a disappointment in who they were able to land uh they didn't land as many guys as as we all kind of thought they would uh you know and, and again that all could have changed with a big time quarterback because you to land in a big time quarterback, then we would all been jumping up and down saying how great of a class it was. They did, though, however, land some big 
big pieces. You know, they, they went out and landed uh, Micah from uh, Baylor, who was, you know, graded the second best interior offensive lineman last year uh, after uh, Osiris Torrance. Uh, they went out and they landed Deuce, uh, the linebacker from Michigan. That was big. You know, they got Caleb Banks, who was a big time player there uh, on the defensive line. So they went out and landed some some good players. Uh, they landed the offensive line that transferred from Alabama as well. They landed some good players. I don't know that they landed enough to really, you know, make the depth of the team uh, tremendously better, but I think they landed enough pieces that fill the starter roles pretty well. You now feel like your offensive line's a pretty good offensive line now uh, when that was a big question mark uh, heading into, you know, the January and into this offseason. You now feel like that's a pretty good spot. With adding Deuce, you feel like the linebacker spot's pretty good now. Um, obviously, you'd love to land another defense alignment or two. Um, so overall, I think it was an okay transfer portal. Uh, do I classify it as great? No. Do I classify it as bad? No. Um, I, again, I don't. I don't know that we should all sweat who left. Um, I think we should sweat a little bit on you know they missed out on some bigger targets, and a lot of that has to do with NIL and Florida's you know, being very unorganized with that. You know, you look at the quarterbacks and, you know, the quarterback transfers are always going to be NIL things. And Florida was just unorganized in that. And and that hurt them a lot. Um, at the end of the day, in this entire conversation, basically the biggest thing for Florida to do is improve NIL. When they improve their NIL, they'll be better in the portal. They'll be better at recruiting. And that'll ultimately be better on the field. Andrew Spivey, GatorCountry.com. Andrew, we've got about 90 seconds to go quickly on Gator basketball. Boy, they've won four out of five in the conference. They started 0-2 in SEC play. They're now 4-3 and with a nice road win at Mississippi State this past weekend. Starting to uh, put things together under head coach Todd Golden. Yeah, you know, and it's, it's really weird because you have games where, like, for instance, the Texas A&M game, where it's just like, what, what, what is going on here? You know, they have no off, offensive uh, game plan, no offensive rhythm going uh, in that game. They score 12 first-half points, but then the second half they come out and, and they battle. And then you have a game like the Mississippi State game where they come out and they, and they play really well. It's just a, right now it's more of a balancing act of getting these guys to really gel together and put it together consistently to continue to have consistently good offensive games where they don't look so just pitiful offensively where they look like they have no identity offensively the ball gets stuck and they don't seem to know what they're doing with it uh if this team can continue to jail i think you you have good things ahead of you for the rest of the season but not just the season next year as you go and, and that's always going to be the the biggest question mark in basketball where you have so many transfers coming in every year and you're have you're trying to get five guys to really play well and gel together really well and i think it's just taking a little bit of time and you know, Florida's non-conference schedule was pretty tough, so they didn't get that, you know, bunch of cupcakes to really gel together. Now they're starting to gel together, and you're starting to see it for the most part. They just have to continue to be consistent. Andrew Spivey, GatorCountry.com. He's one of our go-to guys over in Gainesville. Andrew, always appreciate the time, my friend. Thank you. We'll talk again soon. Absolutely, Ryan. Take care. And thank you to Andrew Spivey of Gator Country for joining us tonight here on Hacker After Dark on 1010XL in Jacksonville. Yeah, it's going to be pretty interesting to see what happens. Obviously, it did not work out as planned. 
with Jaden Rashada. How does that affect Florida moving forward at the quarterback position? They have been a little more active in the portal in the last week or so. Got a couple of more transfers in, but still kind of underwhelming to this point. We'll see what happens with the Gators. It's a tough schedule, man. You look ahead to next season. You open at Utah. You obviously have games against Tennessee, Georgia, LSU, Florida State, South Carolina, just to name a few. And right now, the only three scholarship quarterbacks that you got are Max Brown, Jack Miller, and Wisconsin transfer Graham Mertz. We'll have to see what Florida can do, if anything, over the next couple of months. Well, that'll just about wrap it up for what has been a very busy Wednesday night edition of Hacker After Dark here on 1010XL and 92.5 FM. Thank you guys, as always, for listening to us this evening. Again, Andrew Spivey, GatorCountry.com. Always appreciate his insight over there in Gainesville. Thank you to John Shipley, Jaguar Report, a part of Sports Illustrated. Always enjoy the conversation with John as we recap the season and look ahead to what's going to be a very interesting offseason. It's going to start happening pretty quick here. We're already at the end of January. Free agency officially begins on March the 13th. So thank you to John Shipley and thank you to Ryan Roberts. Rise in Draft, that's the letter N, riseindraft.com. Like looking at a lot of the young Jaguar players on the roster. Of course, Ryan studied all these guys with the work he does at Rise and Draft and took a brief look ahead to the draft class. Again, we're behind here. Normally, by the end of January, we've been talking draft for a couple of months. That's not the case, so we'll start getting more draft guys, including Ryan Roberts from Rise and Draft on more frequently as we go on here on Hacker After Dark. We'll be back tomorrow night on a Thursday, and we'll do it all over again. Dylan Denmark was your producer tonight. Dylan, great job as always. I'm the hacker Ryan Green in Jacksonville. Thank you for spending part of your Wednesday evening with us right here on Hacker After Dark on 1010XL and 92.5 FM. So for all of us here on HAD, have an absolutely terrific remainder of your Wednesday, and we'll talk to you tomorrow night on a Thursday beginning at 8 o'clock. Until then, good night, Jacksonville.